Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. Uh, we have a special short uh, uh, episode this week um, on events in the Dáil around a special criminal court. Later, I'll be talking to Liam Herrick of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties um, about what is the special criminal court, um, why it should be opposed, and what is the alternatives. Um, but first of all, I, I want to, I'm joined by Paul Murphy, TD, and I wanted to get a report as to the events in the Dáil during the week. There was a... Uh, there was a storm out, or there was a uh, Sinn Fein ran away when uh, th- this came up. Could you tell us what happened? Yeah, it was a very peculiar situation, to be honest. Um, so we we knew that last year Sinn Fein, um, really very obviously as a result of pressure they were under in the general election, had abstained on the vote on the special criminal court. When every previous year they voted against, together with the Socialist Left and together with the Greens, while the Greens were in opposition. Um, then during the speeches, it became clear that they were going to abstain. They spoke about abstaining, which was obviously, I mean, is a disappointment. It wasn't a surprise because they'd done it last year and because they're trying to send a signal to the establishment that they would be a safe pair of hands for the capital state. Um, but then when it came to the vote itself, the voting block takes place in the, uh, on a Wednesday evening. There's a whole bunch of different votes. So you're voting on other stuff. And then Mick, Mick Barry said... He just said to me, he sits behind me, he says, turn around, see what's going on. And I turned around and all the Sinn Féin TDs who sit behind us, which is kind of the front bench and others, were all gone. But then, to be honest, I noticed that around the corner, there was other Sinn Féin TDs who were still there. And I mean, there's so many Sinn Féin TDs behind us that there's no way this is a coincidence. But it was clear then there was other Sinn Féin TDs who hadn't got the message and were still sitting there. So I did, I'd be honest, I thought, oh, should I tell them? And I thought, no, <laughs> I won't tell them. If they're making a mistake in terms of their strategy, let them make their mistake. Should you, t- should, you t- should you tell them what? Not to go? or Should I tell them that the rest of their colleagues are gone and presumably they were meant to go too? But I thought, like, you know, they're, they're about to make a, a bad political mistake here in terms of mis- political mistake is not abstaining the offence against the State Act. They're going to serve to highlight it by, like, leaving and then some of them staying and abstaining. And so then that, that was the first vote. The, there was The first vote was on a, a Social Democrats amendment to remove some of the worst aspects of the Offence Against the State Act. So that vote then happened. Most of the Sinn Féin TDs were missing. There was eight still present who abstained. Then I think at that stage they realised, you could see them looking around being like, oh, somehow they didn't get the message. Then they realised that all the rest of their colleagues and all their leaders were gone. So then by the time we moved on to the next vote, which was a vote on the the, the Special Criminal Court itself, the act, they, they were gone. There was two then substantial votes and they the eight then left as well. So there was no Sinn Féin votes recorded. Has this happened before? Is it possible that they just had a meeting on at that stage? Or, like, no. No, I, I, I think it's not possible. I think, I mean, it's very peculiar. Like, I think, I think someone somewhere in Sinn Féin had a, an idea that sounded great at a meeting, which is that, like, look, let's, let's, not, let's not actually abstain. Let's just not be there. And that'll be, somehow that'll shield us from criticism from right and left better. Whereas in actual fact, obviously, it's just literally the pictures of the empty seats are more powerful than the blue numbers in the middle of abstentions. Um, they would have, if they had stayed and abstained, they would have had the same position, for example, as the Social Democrats who abstained. Uh, everyone else voted in favour apart from... Well, actually, is their position not worse than the Social Democrats? Because they abstained on the Social Democrats' amendment. They say, they, it, it is, but that's true. They abstained on the Social Democrats' amendment. So it is. It's a weaker... It's a weaker fundamental opposition 
it's a weaker position on the underlying special criminal court than even the Social Democrats, and the Social Democrats then just abstained. We'll, 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 we'll get into, with Liam later on, I'm going to ask him about the history of the bill and all, but like this was literally a bill brought in to lock up Sinn Féin activists. So when the, when the Sock Dems are more opposed to it than Sinn Féin, it, it says something funny about what's going on within the ranks of, of Sinn Féin or within the leadership of Sinn Féin. Um, but what, what is the, could you talk about that a bit? What's the political backdrop to this? Yeah, I mean, this has been a stick that the establishment has used to beat Sinn Féin with and to remind people of their paramilitary past and to present them as being soft on crime. It's a very classic kind of right-wing populist thing. The the media doesn't call it populist, but very clearly calling for juryless trials. Populism is only something that the left do. Exactly. But it's it's a very populist argument by the right that um, you're, you're soft on crime, you're soft on paramilitarism if you defend civil liberties and the very basic right of people to have a jury at a, at a trial. Um, and Sinn Féin in the general election bowed to that pressure. They came up with an excuse for abstaining, which is, oh, there's a, there's a review going on. And, we'll, and so the review is still going on. So therefore they, they abstained again. But really, I mean, it is very clearly um, an attempt to signal to the establishment that they're, they're moving away from their opposition to the Special Criminal Court. They're moving away from opposition to like some of the most regressive ways that the Irish state acts, that in government, just like the Green Party, they wouldn't insist on the abolition of it and actually would be willing to vote in favour of its continuation. One thing that's kind of sad, to be honest, is seeing some Sinn Féin activists online um, who kind of can't believe, and I understand it, they can't believe that their party that is historically opposed the Special Criminal Court is now not opposing it. And so you had all sorts of justifications. Oh Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to ask you. I saw this argument that, like, well, is it not good? What they did caused lots of publicity on this. Uh, um, and is it not part of some big, bigger Machiavellian uh, plan to just expose the Special Criminal Court? Uh, um, what, what would you say? What do you think about that? I- exactly. This is part of some, like, you know, you know deep... Very smart plan, presumably dreamt up in the head of Ono Brin. Three-dimensional chess, like, you know? That, exactly. Three-dimensional chess by, by, by not opposing the Special Criminal Court. In reality, they're opposing the Special Criminal Court. The, the only problem with that is, one, well, some of the many problems with that is, one, um, when they spoke, they made it clear that they were abstaining. So some people are trying to say that actually their opposition was even stronger by walking out. Because often you see that people say, oh, you should walk out of the doll. You know, it's a sham anyway. And some people were saying that. But to even after the vote, then Morris Quinlevin, the Limerick TD for Sinn Féin, has come out and said, actually, their position, of course, was abstention. We knew that. And they should have stayed and abstained. So there, there's no doubt that their position is one of abstention. And, and then in terms of the, the other argument is, ah, sure, it wouldn't have made a difference anyway. Yeah, okay. What about the vote on, on the banning evictions that we had earlier on an amendment from People for Profit? They stayed and voted for a ban on evictions, even though it wasn't going to win. Should they, would, would they have been better off not turning up for that? Would they be better off not turning up for every vote on housing that takes place in the Dáil because we're not going to win? It's a very silly argument and it's because people don't want to see the truth i i understand that but the truth is Sinn Féin is trying to make it it reminds me of do you remember when syriza there was a couple of months after syriza were elected and there was huge hopes in them and then they started blinking and they started putting out reports about like how oh well we may need to cut 
public services by 1 billion euros or whatever, you know, they started like, and I can remember at the time there was loads of people going, oh, actually, this is part of a bigger plan. They're saying they're going to cut 1 billion, but it's all a trick and they're not really. And it's like, like people just, you couldn't believe what was happening before your eyes and you tried to come up with any sort of um, funny story to justify it. I think it's a bit of a glimpse of what will probably happen in the context. In the in the first days, in the first months of uh, if Sinn Féin were unfortunately to go into government with Fianna Fáil, as I think, you know, it, there's quite a possibility after the next election, is you can imagine, understandably, people have invested so many hopes and expectations in them, for their, their activist base in particular, the idea that that they're actually going to betray people's hopes after so long of, you know, and so on. Um, people can't believe that. And it takes multiple instances for it, for it to come out to people. And I think that's okay. And I think our, our role in this is, is not to like, be like, haha, we were right. We told you we were going to sell people out. But, but to, we, we do have to stand up and tell people the truth. We can't, exp- we can't, you know, there's a lot of pressure to say, people are saying, oh, you're in, you're in bed with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael because you're criticising Sinn Féin, even though we're criticising Sinn Féin for coming closer to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. We, we can't accept that kind of pressure. We have to speak the truth, um, but not in a way that is kind of crowing or whatever. We still, next year, we will still put the same appeal to Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, you should reverse the wrong decision you made last time, come back to opposing um, the special uh, criminal court, take the right position on, on these things. Yeah, and like it's, it reminds like it reminds me of the a, a bigger point actually, which is that like every concession that you make to the right, uh, um, every time you like blink and you uh, give an inch, uh, it only emboldens them. You know, it's that old Ar- Arlene Foster line of you know if you feed a crocodile, um, they keep coming back. Uh, um, but I, I think there's obviously she said that in a very different context. But I think there's like a a point there, which is that like if the establishment get a sense of oh they're weak on this, they're shifting. It only then encourages, it demoralizes your activists, it confuses your supporters who want to be defending you and you know, blurs the, the lines, but it also emboldens the establishment that, look, okay, we can come down on them and, and, and force them to, to, to change track. Exactly. And this is like, you know, a well-worn path. You see every concession that Jeremy Corbyn made to the right in, in Britain, sure, they just took it and then wanted more. He conceded you got an anti-Semitic problem. Well, then what are you going to do about it? Who are you going to expel, etc.? Like, that's... You need to stand up to the right. Like the the right was crowing about the them not being there and was saying they don't, you know, they're not a constitutional party and so on. They still went on the attack against them. On on another point, I mean, it's, it's not this doesn't have the same political significance. But again, it's kind of a, a a method now of Sinn Fein of retreating. It was interesting. Sinn Fein TD, who will remain nameless, said to me a couple of weeks ago about the remember the polling controversy. He said to me, "Fair play to you. Um, you stood up to them." in terms of defending the right of small parties to do polling and not pay polling companies, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Fair play to you, you stood up to them and you managed to turn the narrative about it. Because the Sinn Féin approach to it was to say, oh, we're very sorry, we don't do it anymore, when, when it was clear they do do it. <laughs> I mean, they continue to do it. But their whole mode is to, is to apologise, to retreat, as opposed to sometimes you take a stance, you argue your case, and actually, if you explain it properly, you, you can win. And I think, like, I do think it's a weird one. I mean, it's it's one, I don't think it's one where there's massive 
massive popular pressure in favour of the Special Criminal Court. I don't think there's massive, massive popular pressure against the Special Criminal Court either. I don't think most people think about it. But it's it's one that's kind of a litmus test for the state and the establishment in this country. And I think that's that's its significance for Sinn Féin. That's who they're signalling to by conceding on this one, as opposed to, you know, there's a very clear principled argument to be made, as I'm sure we'll hear later from Liam Herrick, about civil liberties and about why we shouldn't have juryless uh, trials. And they should have made that argument together with the socialist left. Yeah. Okay. Um, what the, the final thing, uh, I'll ask Liam about it as well in a bit, but um, obviously next year is the 50th anniversary of this like emergency measure being brought in. And um, there's some review going on. Like, what do you think is the... The, the, the future for this or what do you think should we be doing about this now yeah I, I think we should try and use the fact that there's publicity around it now to actually build awareness about what's happening with this and to build a campaign to get rid of it I think it's very unlikely that the review will recommend any substantial changes in terms of the fact that you have a juryless court the fact that the DPP gets to destroy, decide which cases go there the fact that you have different rules of evidence which are really unfair to the defence where you can have secret evidence that the defence doesn't get to see where the opinion of a Garda gets to be taken as fact I think it's very unlikely that those fundamental elements will be changed because they're kind of they're repressive powers in the, in the hands of the state in a sense it makes them easier to convict those that they want to convict and um, obviously many of those who want to convict are you know gangland people or whatever people we would have no truck with but there's a basic point in terms of civil liberties that we need to to defend and, and it does it, it underlines the point that like every extension of powers it always happens in a particular context linked to a particular thing so you see in terms of this legislation originally the original version of it in the early 70s linked to republican paramilitaries um and you look at the covid legislation now you look at the patriot act in the u.s they 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 introduce things supposedly for like immediate short-term emergency things but then they they stay in place and that's you know, here we are 50 years on and there's no sign of the state admitting that, like, the context within which it originally was justified, it was never justified, but they justified it, that no longer exists. And, oh, we, we shouldn't have it anymore. OK, that's brilliant. And, of course, you're only joining us from your home rather than from, from prison because you were fortunate enough to get a jury trial yourself exactly. before Job's down. <laughs> if you, that's why you're personally invested in this. I certainly am. <laughs> <laughs> if there was no jury in that trial, you'd be... We'd be, uh, uh, you'd be there with Mummy Abu Jamal. We'd be, uh, uh, we'd have to be r- launching a campaign. Um, okay, I shall let you go, uh, and I'm going to talk to uh, Liam next. Okay, so now I'm joined by Liam Herrick of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties to tell us a bit more about what is the Special Criminal Court, why it's uh, um, so worrying and, and why it should be abolished. Uh, so, Liam, first of all, to start off, like, what exactly is the Special Criminal Court, if you could give people an introduction, the ABCs of it, and how is it different to other courts? Yeah, so the, the Special Criminal Court, um, which was established under the Defence Against the State Act, is effectively a, a, a non-jury court to deal with certain types of serious crimes. Um, there's a constitutional right in Ireland to trial by jury. And, and in practice, what this means is that for most criminal offences of a serious nature, um, that you would be tried by a jury of your peers. Um, and in the height of the troubles, uh, the, the government proposed the establishment of a non-jury court. We had previously had non-jury courts in other periods of, of independence around the border campaign and other kind of periods of conflict in the 40s and 50s. But the current um, institution, the Special Criminal Court, 
it comes from the 1970s and the conflict in Northern Ireland. And it was very clear that the purpose, the stated justification at that time was to deal with cases in relation to illegal organisations, uh, in particular the, the IRA and certain other uh, identified prescribed organisations, the INLA and, and so on. Um, and, and the logic and the justification was is that uh, the security threat posed by these organizations, the members of these organizations, and the potential for intimidation of juries uh, meant that they had to be dealt with in a different way. You also, at the same time, had the introduction of, of similar types of courts in Northern Ireland um, with regard to, to non-jury uh, trials there too. From the very beginning, a, a lot of lawyers were against it. And just tell us, what's the problem for, for a lot of people the fact that it's a non-jury court, what difference does it make? Why is that an important issue? Well, I suppose the, the right to trial by jury is a foundation of our justice system. Um, and I suppose the, the logic of why it's so important really comes down to the safeguard that's provided um, to a trial by your peers. Particularly, I suppose it's relevant in a subversive context where People might might not recognize or accept the independence and legitimacy of state institutions as such. So historically, it's seen as a check and balance uh, against a politicized justice system that you will ultimately be tried by members of your own community. And one of the fundamental problems here is that in Ireland, some people who are charged with serious crime are tried by a jury and other people are not. They're tried by a judge or a group of judges in the Special Criminal Court. And the distinction between the two is not as simple as you might think. I mean, originally, uh, there was a fairly clear distinction that the special was for IRA-related offences or or terrorism-related offences, membership of an illegal organisation, or the commission of crimes such as murder, robbing banks, and so on, that was associated with the conflict. Um, That's no longer the case. Now we've got a very arbitrary situation where some people who are accused of serious crime get tried in the special, and some people accused of serious crime get tried in the ordinary courts. The DPP has pretty much absolute discretion as to who gets sent where. They don't have to justify it. It can't be challenged. So like quite bizarrely, you had a situation in the last year where an individual who was charged with the murder of a member of Angarda Shiakana, extremely serious offence, in the course of a bank robbery, and there were suggestions of association and involvement with organised criminal activities and potentially even illegal organisations, was tried in the ordinary courts, where you have individuals um, charged with serious crime to do with or organized crime, for example, uh, very often being tried in the special where there's no evidence of involvement in a legal organization or of jury intimidation. So I, I think that's the fundamental inequality that's at the heart of the system that we have now. So, so one of the issues is the jur- juryless trial. And yet that whole point, we've all, we've all seen 12 angry men. We all know how important having a jury that can actually debate out the evidence and weigh things up is. Um, but the, the, there's more to the Special Criminal Court. Uh, um, there's different rules in terms of evidence as well that apply in the Special Criminal Court versus a, a normal court, if you could go into that maybe. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think this is the specific Irish issue here. 
is that what what has emerged is a a body of procedure in this particular court that is outside of the normal protections. Um, we have opinion evidence, uh, which is that persons can be convicted on the opinion evidence of a senior member of Angarda Shikana, which doesn't need to be supported by evidence that's open in court, uh, particularly with regard to membership of an illegal organization. So a, a superintendent can go into the court and say, I believe that John Murphy is a member of the IRA and that that would be accepted as evidence, whereas in the ordinary courts, that's hearsay evidence that would be inadmissible. Um, there's a, a, a further profound problem about disclosure of evidence. The norm in the criminal process is that evidence is open to both sides. So the evidence which is used to support a charge would be open to the defence so that they can challenge it. Um, and in the special court in particular, we have a pattern emerging of where uh, the prosecution will say that opening certain evidence would present a security risk and therefore the evidence is only open to uh, the judge. Uh, the judge might deem that the evidence is inadmissible, but he or she will already have seen the evidence, you know? And th th this is a, a really serious problem that um, has been certainly questioned in a number of recent legal cases. Um, the courts are unhappy with the situation that's there, but it's still prevailing now. So um, we, we have the, the problem of police evidence. Um, we have the problem of evidence not being open to the defence. And then this is all in the context of a special, extraordinary system outside of the norm as well. I mean, it, it can be argued, I think, that the very act of sending somebody to the special for uh, trial sends out a, a particular message and uh, very often creates a sense of a presumption of guilt rather than the presumption of innocence. Um, there's also kind of a, a kind of counterproductive element, I think, to all of this as well, in that particularly today when, you know, there isn't one or a small number of illegal organizations that pose a national security threat to the state, you know, um, military uh, political republicanism, for example, is very splintered. Um, the groups aren't as easily definable as they were in the past. And in fact, sending somebody for trial to the special criminal court, it could be argued, gives somebody a sense of political status. You know, it gives them a sense of, of importance and legitimacy that they mightn't otherwise have. Uh, and, and it's probably questionable, you know, if you're serious about combating the problem about these groups, is this a wise or effective way of dealing with it? Um, and, and as the number of paramilitary cases declined, the number of organized crime or serious crime cases has increased, creating a sense really that the courts are just finding a way to justify the, the continuance of the court uh, rather than there being a logical justification for it. Because it was brought in like almost 50 years ago as like an extraordinary emergency measure. And like so many things, 50 years on, it's it's kept on the books. Um, but actually, the other thing is, how does this compare internationally? How is this viewed like globally? Uh, is Ireland an outlier here or is this a fairly common? Yeah, I mean, one, I suppose, one of the, the, difficult, the difficulties in answering that question is that Jury trials 
um, are not universal, right? So um, we we have our, our particular legal tradition, the common law legal tradition, and jury trial has been very important in that tradition, the tradition from the British uh, system. Um, there's other countries where they don't have jury trials at all, you know? So there isn't an international right to have a jury trial. The problem here is that the norm in Ireland is to have a jury trial, and this is an exception to it. And it's it's that differential treatment is really the problem. It has been consistently criticised by various UN bodies over the years. So the Irish Council for Civil Liberties opposed uh, the use of the special since we were established in 1976. Amnesty International has consistently criticised the use of the court. The UN Human Rights Committee has found against Ireland with regard to the use of the court on a number of occasions, including on this question about the DPP's discretion to send somebody for a jury trial and somebody not for a jury trial. Um, so it, it is a subject of an ongoing criticism. I suppose the most interesting comparison is with our nearest neighbour. And in Northern Ireland, they did also introduce non-jury trials, the famous Diplock courts in uh, Northern Ireland during the conflict. Um, was hugely controversial, was seen as a politicising of the justice system there at the time. They still retain the use of non-jury trials in limited circumstances in the North. But I think one of the interesting uh, distinctions is that on the recent renewal of the non-jury trial system in Northern Ireland, the ministers of the executive um, made a commitment that the intention was to end the use of non-jury trials in Northern Ireland. So whereas they're still on the books now, it's something that they're trying to, trying to end. Uh, we have no such commitment here. Um, and you know, if there is a security risk, you'd imagine it's at least as significant in Northern Ireland as it is down here. Uh, and what they're trying to do in the North is explore other options. I mean, I think it's questionable how much evidence is out there about the problem of jury intimidation being a really serious problem on the ground. But even if you accept that there is a serious threat of jury intimidation, you need to look at alternative ways of solving that problem. You know, either having anonymous juries, remote juries, or special protections for jurors. And we have plenty of examples from the United States and Australia, New Zealand, and so on, of jurisdictions which are able to manage this problem. And these are countries that have, you know, they have organized crime there too, but they're able to deal with it, yeah. Because obviously, like, it is an understandable argument. Um, I heard uh, Paul Murphy was on News Talk uh, on Thursday morning talking about this and the point was put by the presenter which is like he wouldn't want to be called up and have to serve in a trial you know be a juror in a trial of some uh, um, Kinahan gang or whatever person you know and I think that's understandable for a lot of people I, I wouldn't want to be uh, called up and, and, and put myself into the middle of that um, but what how is that dealt with in other in other countries uh, um, how do you protect jurors in like those kind of high risk uh, uh, trials in other countries or what's the best practice I mean w w one of the ways would be through anonymous juries that the identity of jurors is kept secret from uh, the, the defence in, in, in a case um, or that you could have remote, secure jur juries as well. So there are, there are methods of doing it. And I, I think, look, I think we should just at least have that conversation. And we would hope now that the current independent review group that the government has set up to review the operation of the Special and the Offence Against the State Act 
that it, it might conduct that type of process. Um, and like Ireland is a country that would be seen on most issues as being in the top bracket of, you know, fair trial rights, uh, independent judiciary, um, you know, respect for the, the rights of the accused. This is a this is a glaring kind of blot on our, our copybook. And at a time when, you know, judicial independence and fair trial rights are really under pressure in many parts of the world, um, and many countries abolish jury trials for very nefarious, cynical purposes, you know, uh, that's not the case here. But it does weaken our standing internationally that, that we have, for no obvious justification, retained a wartime justice system in peacetime. And that, that's the bottom line here, is that something that was introduced because of, of a real risk during a real conflict is now being retained for other purposes. And I think th th that's the real problem for the Irish government, is that it really isn't offering a, a compelling justification. I mean, it's, it's what it's saying now is that, okay, we introduced it for that purpose. Now we've got a completely different purpose, um, which is to do with organised serious crime, and we're justifying it for that basis. But that ignores the fact that every other country has to deal with problems of organised crime too. They don't set up a parallel justice system to deal with it. Okay, and so uh, there's a review. The government has launched a review of this. Uh, um, but what can we do? What can be done to try to push for this to, to be abolished? Well, I think what is welcome is, is that this independent review group has been set up with six members. It's chaired by a judge. Uh, there's a number of leading independent academics on it as well as representatives of um, the legal profession and uh, the, the government departments as well, they have advertised for submissions. So I think that there is a really good opportunity now for individuals and organisations who have strong feelings about this question to make submissions uh, to, to and, and I think the closing date is, is in early July, so it's, it's coming up quite quickly. But if you go to the Department of Justice website, justice.ie, You'll see details of it. And also the Irish Council for Civil Liberties website, uh, iccl.ie, we have details about this campaign and indeed other campaigns so people can sign up for notifications and updates on it as well. Uh, we do think that this is a historic opportunity. The last review was about 20 years ago now, uh, again chaired by a judge. And uh, I mean, that, that was very disappointing in the end because uh, the, the judge... And the independent members of that review made very strong findings against uh, uh, the practices in the Special Criminal Court at that time. But the majority of members of that group were representative of, of state agencies and government departments. And, and, and they defended the status quo. You know, there was a dissenting opinion ultimately um, by uh, Dermot Walsh, William Binchy and Judge Hederman. Uh, so I, I think... That is an, an indication that academic experts, international human rights bodies are, are very clear this is an unjustifiable uh, system. But it really has been the state agencies that have perpetuated this over the years. Yeah. And we, we don't want to have a, a repeat of that kind of a, a whitewash report. Um, yeah, hopefully it won't happen. Yeah, I mean, hopefully this time I think it will be different. I mean, I, I think w w we would have confidence that there will be a thorough process here. Um, what was disappointing is in launching the independent review group, uh, which was a positive step, the Minister for Justice in the same press statement said, 
my personal view is that it should be retained, you know, and I think that, that, that that's disappointing. It's, it's disappointing the way in which some political parties, I think, have sought to politicize this question um, to try to suggest that anybody that questions the status quo is in some way soft on crime or soft on organized crime or subversives, which I think, you know, is, is not a fair or mature way of looking at what is a very serious legal question. But I would I'd, I'd echo your encouragements for people to check out ICCL.ie um, and to make submissions. And if any groups and campaign groups that are out there uh, uh, to make submissions to, and try to keep pressure on this over the next 12 months, because um, it, it will be up again next year. Uh, um, uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully the review will have reported and will hopefully be proposing its abolition. But if not, we need to keep up the pressure anyway. Um, okay, Liam, I'll let you go unless you have any last comments that you want to throw in. No, uh, thanks a million, Keen. And, and I mean, just to say that even though uh, the special is being renewed for another year now, uh, and even though, um, you know, the debate in the Dáil was very short, uh, in fairness, there was a number of parties and individuals that did stand up on a point of principle. And I think they're to be commended uh, on that. Uh, this This is something where we are an outlier. And I think... It's a terrible shame that Ireland's, you know, very good track record on human rights generally is consistently undermined by uh, retaining something that's not properly justified. And like Ireland is before the UN Human Rights Council in in the autumn on our human rights record, this is going to come up again. And Ireland is going to be criticised again for just failing to justify this. Uh, So I, I think it's an issue that ICCL, we were founded essentially in reaction to the setting up of the court initially and the miscarriages of justice that were being witnessed, particularly the Salins case, um, where there was a, a blatant miscarriage of justice in the Special Criminal Court. So this really is at the core of our identity as an organisation and we're certainly not going to be letting up on okay. it. Fair, fair play, Liam. Have a good day and I, I make sure to everybody to check those things out and to, to pile the pressure on and make sure we can abolish this Special Criminal Court once and for all. Okay, thanks, Liam. Have a good day. Cheers. Cheers, Kim. Thanks, many. Thanks, Kim. And I just add those TDs that Liam mentioned that did speak out and oppose this, the, the Magnificent Seven. It was our own Paul Murphy TD, who we heard from earlier on, uh, Breed Smith TD, Richard Boyd Barrett TD, Gino Kenny TD, all of People for Profit, uh, as well as Mick Barry. Uh, Catherine Connolly and Thomas Pringle. Um, those were the seven, like the magnificent seven, that did speak out and oppose the Special Criminal Court. Um, if your local TD is not one of those seven, make sure to, to get onto them and, and criticise them for supporting this. Um, and do check out ICCL. If you did like this podcast and you'd like to see more, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com forward slash Rupture Radio and the links and all in the description. Thank you very much and have a good day.